Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. for quite a few years, in fact, since she was a PhD student at UC Berkeley. And at that time, her dissertation, which made an important contribution, uh, was already a sign of a budding scholar with great ideas. Um, As her career progressed, she moved from focusing on traffic alone to multimodal transportation, looking at the trade-offs and possible in cities when you have multiple modes of transportation which provide greater flexibility and quite a few advantages, both in terms of congestion and, importantly, the externalities of transport. Uh, We were lucky to recruit Monica here. She had been um, suffering in the cold weather of uh, northern Switzerland for a few years at ETH Zurich, and she joined us here at NYU Abu Dhabi And immediately, within less than a semester from her arrival, she was leading a team of faculty in engineering, social science, and computer science in writing a proposal for a new research center. Uh, That research center is Cities, which uh, she is the director of. Uh, And Cities stands, it doesn't stand literally for anything. It's not a real acronym, but it's the Center for Interacting uh, uh, Urban Networks, or something like that. Um, And uh, in many ways, what the Center does, and really uh, one of the strong points, I think, which made this proposal uh, successful, is the real integration of engineers, social scientists and computer scientists in, uh, in leading the center and in the, very, in the very design of the center as it looks at the interaction between three types of networks in cities. The infrastructure networks, in this case transportation, the social network, among that is how people relate to each other in the city, and the data network. Essentially, the um, the technology component of um, of urban networks. So her talk today is going to be really inspired by what Cities does, and I'm sure she'll uh, say a few words about that center specifically. Um, so, without further ado, I introduce Monica. Thank you, Summer. Let me turn on my computer again. Thank you for the introduction. Good afternoon, everyone. 
And thanks uh, to the NYUAV Institute, it's both an honor and a pleasure to be part of the NYUAV Research Public Talk series. So, indeed, Summer mentioned cities already. It stands for Center for Interacting Urban Networks. It's not the capital letters, but the letters for cities are there in the name. And while in the center we look at many different aspects related to cities and urban challenges and how do we try to address those urban challenges by looking at cities from a holistic manner, taking into account the digital, the physical, and the social layers. Today, I'm gonna be talking about my own research. It's a research on mobility that I do. And hopefully we're gonna be discussing, or hopefully we're gonna be discussing how we can use information and technology to gain a better understanding of traffic in cities and potentially try to address some of the issues brought up by that traffic. It all starts with our cars. We love our cars, right? They are very convenient and flexible. They take us from anywhere to anywhere at any given time. They give us our personal space, but they lead to traffic congestion. And it's not only traffic congestion, but all the negative externalities associated uh, to it, as Summer said. And that is emissions, uh, energy consumption, noise pollution, safety, and the time you spend on traffic. Now, traffic congestion happens because the demand, how much we love and use our cars, exceeds the supply, the capacity of the urban network. Now, given that, one could argue that why don't we expand our, our road system, right? Let's build more roads with an increase with the capacity. Let's add capacity to the network. Now, the problem with this is that now we understand that by adding roads to the network, we actually create new demand. It's called induced demand. In fact, if you look at cities like LA, how many more lanes can you put in there? yet it is still congested, right? So ultimately, road expansion leads to more reliance on our private cars, and this becomes a cycle, and it's a very unsustainable cycle. So how do we address this? How do we break such cycles? Well, we can work on the network design. Let's create cities where there are denser environments, you get closer to the, uh, you have mixed use, so you don't need to travel that far. But that works for new cities or when you're making changes. Existing cities, you sort of have your hands tied. You can gain efficiency out of your network, right? Uh, and technology and information are key to do this. Let's try to get more of, out of the networks that are already in place. Or, we can change our behavior. We can try to travel in a more sustainable manner. Now, with that, I'm gonna guide, uh, guide you to the um, two levers that I mentioned before, information and technology. I work on both of these as part of our mobility system. So I'm gonna start with information. With the huge amount of data that we're generating and collecting these days, we're having access for the first time in many years, you know, this wasn't possible 20 years ago, to large-scale traffic data sets. And this is great because it can give us a lot of insights into what's happening on the network. In fact, at my previous institution, 
some colleagues and I compile data that was being collected already by different cities and it remained in silos. We compiled it all together and made it public. So this is now the largest publicly available traffic data set in the world and it contains almost 5 billion vehicle observations from over 40 cities worldwide. Access to this type of data is crucial for us to better understand traffic phenomena so we can predict it, but also to provide information to the end users and potentially change their behavior and to proactively control traffic in order to reduce congestion. How do we do that? Now, before I get into the details, I'm going to start with a very quick introduction to traffic flow theory, so the diagrams that I show later sort of make sense for everyone. Let's start with a single link on a network. By link, I mean a road between two consecutive intersections, right? When we're describing traffic, the traffic state of that link, we normally use three metrics or three variables, flow, density, and speed. Flow is the rate at which vehicles are passing through that link. So if I were to stand next to the link, at which rate would vehicles pass me by? Vehicles per hour. How many vehicles per hour would I count? Now density is how many vehicles I can put in a given space. So if I were to take a picture, how many vehicles would I see per kilometer of road? And then speed is just how fast vehicles travel, uh, kilometers per hour. Then we know that flow equals density times speed. And since the 1930s, since Greenshield started looking into this, we have been able to sort of uh, represent this with what we call the fundamental diagram of traffic. Now the fundamental diagram is specific to every individual road. Each road has a fundamental diagram, but it might be different from this road to that one. And it contains all possible traffic states of that road. Now, the possible traffic states are along the triangle, along the line, not below, not above, but along the line. Evidently with some scatter because this is the real world, right? Things are not deterministic. Now, in this diagram, we have flow on the vertical axis. We have density in the horizontal axis. Then speed is simply by the equation that I show you above, is the slope of the line connecting any point on that diagram to the origin. As you can see in this diagram, there's a peak, you know, the top of that, of that triangle. And that is the capacity of the road. That's the maximum number of cars that that road can sustain. And it's associated with a value for density, with a critical density. If I'm on the left of that critical density, meaning on the left side of this diagram, as I add a little bit of, as I add some vehicles to the system, the speed remains high, so I increase my flow, and this is good. So the system is uncongested. However, if my density surpasses the critical density, then as I add some vehicles, the, flow, the speed starts going down, flow starts going down, which is not good, and the system becomes congested. If you're on the left side, the system is uncongested. If you're on the right side, the system is congested. And this is the part that we don't like in traffic, when the system is congested, right? So we normally try to avoid the right side. Now, that's a single link. A network is much more complicated. Because as I said, each link might have a different fundamental diagram, right? On top of it, even if two links were to have a similar fundamental diagram, they might achieve 
a given traffic state at different times. So this link might get congested at nine and this one might get congested at 10. Last but not least, links are very connected, extremely connected. So when you have a queue here, it might spill back into a link upstream, which means that over a period of minutes or hours, what happens on this side of the network might have a very clear impact on this other side of the network. So trying to understand traffic at the network level by looking individually at every link, each individual link, doesn't get us anywhere. Fortunately for us, about 15 years ago, I told you the fundamental diagram people proposed, Greenshield proposed it in the 1930s. It took almost a century until 2007, 2008 for another uh, colleague in traffic flow theory to propose and prove that at the network level, we have something else, a similar diagram. Then he coined it, he called it the macroscopic fundamental diagram. Macroscopic because he said, well, this is at the network level. Some people call it the network fundamental diagram. I would call it in this presentation, the macroscopic fundamental diagram or MFD, the initials. Now, it looks very similar to a fundamental diagram except that it's flatter on the top. But then this diagram again represents the traffic states, the average traffic states of the network at different periods of time, different times of the day. We don't need to understand what's happening at each individual link. We can see what happens at a network level, right? Now this is good because then we can start understanding traffic patterns that don't reduce themselves to a single link, but they take up the whole network, right? So then one valid question there will be, are traffic patterns reproducible across days for a given city? Here you have 28 MFDs, this is real data, from 28 consecutive days in September 2017 in Zurich, Switzerland. Now the scale is the same, so these MFDs look quite similar, right? So we say, okay, it's reproducible. However, if you start looking at the details of it, then you start noticing differences between the different between the MFDs. So we use an algorithm that has a very fancy name, dynamic time warping, but all it does is it allows us to compare different diagrams. And we compare different diagrams not only based on the specific shape, but the temporal aspects of that shape. When does the system get congested? Is it at 10, or when does it reach a specific flow density combination? Is it at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m.? Similar diagrams were then uh, pulled into a single cluster, what we would call a cluster. Different colors here refer to different clusters. Not surprising, they kind of repeat themselves, you know, they, similar days fall within the same cluster. So for example, Saturday, which is the second column, all Saturdays are the same, red, right? They fall within the same cluster. Sunday, which is the third column, similar. Most Sundays are the same. They're, I don't know, yellowish, mustard, except the second Sunday, which is red. Now that's weird. But it's even weirder because it precedes a weird Monday, a pink Monday instead of a green Monday. Now it happens when I look at it, I was like, what happened? 
that Pink Monday is a very special holiday in Zurich where people go target shooting. So kids don't go to school, everyone goes shooting, target shooting. So anyways, the Sunday that precedes that Monday behaves as a Saturday, and then Monday behaves as something differently, different, right? Basically, this is telling us that the MSDs that we observe are somewhat a function of the demand. And within the same day, the demand tends to reproduce itself, right? Mondays are pretty similar, you know, Mondays, I need to take my kids to school, and I might leave my house 10 minutes later or 10 minutes earlier, depending on what time my kids wake up, whether they went to bed early or late the previous night. But in general, it's the same routine for me. I take my kids to school, and I'm assuming this is pretty much the same for everyone. So Mondays, we tend to do the same thing, Tuesdays. Uh, this is true for all cities as well. You know, we tested multiple cities, and in all cases, we could reduce, ah, sorry, I'm sorry. What we did actually after this was we looked at 365 days at a full year. And that full year was represented by six different clusters only. So any day within that, those 365 days was represented by one of these clusters. And not surprising, each of those clusters corresponded to a traffic pattern in the city. So here you have six maps, the same map of Zurich, and on top of it we have later contour plot. Contour plot, the, the darker colors represent more traffic, meaning more congestion. And as you can see, the six contour plots are different. They represent different congestion patterns, right? And here's my explanation about before. This congestion pattern that I was given before, these congestion patterns are typically associated with a demand pattern, right? And this is true across cities because we tested multiple cities and in all cases, we could reduce 365 days into five, six, seven typical MSEs. Now this is very cool because if we can monitor some streets here in Zurich, just a few streets that give us hints from very early in the morning which of these patterns we're gonna observe, then we can detect or identify from very early in the morning how the MSE is gonna look like, how traffic is gonna, uh, how traffic patterns are gonna look that day, and then we can proactively do something to reduce the spread of congestion or congestion itself. As I said, this is true for many cities, but then can I use the insights from Zurich in Abu Dhabi? That's a whole different question, right? So, are traffic patterns reproducible across cities? Now, to answer this, we use the data that I discussed before. Uh, we have collected data from 47 cities worldwide, and they're mostly in Europe because that's when I was, where we, when we started doing this. One thing that I didn't mention about the MSE, the MSE for the MSE to exist, it must represent an area that is relatively compact and homogeneous, more or less. For instance, I wouldn't be able to get a meaningful MSE if I tried to put together downtown Abu Dhabi and Sadia. Because these two networks, even though they belong to the same city, are completely disconnected, 
right? So what happens downtown probably has no bearing on what's happening in Saudi in terms of traffic and vice versa. So that means that for most cities, we might have to stop dividing them. So even though we had 47 cities, we ended up with over 100 MFEs. And here are just four examples. Unfortunately, the Y axis is not the same, like the scales are different, so it's not easy to compare. But I can tell you, they all look different. However, that's not surprising. We saw that even changes in demand within the same city could change that. So the same is true across cities. You know, the capacity in Lucerne is much higher than the capacity in Marseille. Then we decided rather than focusing on the whole MFE, why don't we focus on the critical point of that MFE? That defines the capacity of an urban network in terms of cars. Now this is important, right? It's like how many cars can this city handle? What's the maximum? And then we call it the critical point because it's not only the capacity, you also need to look at the critical density, the density associated with that point. So we set out to answer ourselves, is the critical point different? The answer is yes, that was clear, it was anticipated. But which network properties in particular affect that critical point? Which network features drive those differences? This was a long story, but to make a long story, long story short, uh, we ended up finding that there are four network features that explain about 90% of the variation in the critical point. The first one is network length. So, lane kilometers of road, okay, lane kilometers of road within a given space, within say one kilometer uh, square. So the more, the higher the network length or the more kilometers of road that we have, the higher the critical density. But we have diminishing returns. Meaning, the first additional kilometer you put will get you much more in terms of additional capacity than the 10th additional kilometer you put. So this takes us back to the previous statement that the solution is not road expansion. We talked before about the uh, induced demand. But there's also the fact that the marginal returns decrease as we add more and more roads. So it doesn't make sense to continue paving over our city road lanes, right? Now the second indicator, the second network feature is average centrality. The actual name is average between a centrality. And this is an indicator used quite often in network science. Sort of give you an idea for the redundancy of the network. By redundancy, I mean how many options do I have to go from A to B? The more options I have, the more redundancy I have. So a grid network, where you have a grid, is very redundant. Because to go from here to here, I can go like this, I can go like this, I can go like this. There are many possible paths to go from A to B. Now, a higher average centrality between a centrality means a lower redundancy, and then it means a lower critical point because I use the network more, less efficiently because I'm concentrating all my trips into a single route rather than giving many options to go from A, uh, from a to B. Now the third feature is intersection density. So how often do I have intersections, intersections per uh, kilometer of road in a given space? The higher the intersection density, 
the lower the critical point, the lower the complexity of the network, which makes sense. This is for cars. If I have intersections, a lot of intersections, I constantly stop, you know, for the traffic light or whatever type of control I have at the intersection. Um, but also, more intersections mean shorter blocks. And when blocks are short, queues spill back, the traffic queues spill back easily into the uh, roads upstream, into the links upstream. Now, if you think about it, these two indicators, average between the centrality and intersection density, sort of show the trade-off between cars and non-motorized transportation. The higher the average between a centrality and the higher the intersection density, the worse it is for cars. But the better it is for non-motorized modes. With average centrality, I basically give more space to non-motorized modes in the other areas of the network, where you know I'm concentrating all cars in a single route or in a few routes, but the rest of the roads are free for people to bike, to use micromobility, etc. Intersection density, the same. The higher intersection density, the worse it is for cars, the easier it is for pedestrians or for bicycles. So you don't have to walk long distances to cross the street, right? Now, the last point is interactions with public transportation. And the higher the interaction, the lower the capacity for cars. Why is that? Well, because buses are larger than cars. They take up a lot of space. They're slower. They are constantly stopping because the bus stops. So when we think about interactions with public transportation, it sort of includes two drivers, right? How dense is a public transportation network? Because it's not the same thing to have buses on a single street than all throughout the network, right? And how frequent buses come? Because it's not the same thing to have buses every two hours and to have them every 10 minutes. Now, as I said, the higher the interactions, the worse it is for cars. But we need to be very, very, very careful for this because I'm not advocating in taking a, uh, on taking out public transportation. In fact, if we were to look at the capacity of the system in terms of people rather than vehicles, we will find another story, that, um, a whole different story, but we will find that it makes a lot of sense to substitute cars with buses because buses have a much higher capacity and they can move a lot of people. Right? So now we should ask ourselves whether we are in the business of increasing the throughput or the capacity of vehicles or the capacity of people, right? of, like our ability to move people. I believe it's the latter. Um, so we need to be very careful with what I'm saying here. Right? This is detrimental to cars, but not detrimental to people moving vehicles. Right? It just explains the differences in the critical point across cities. That's all I'm trying to do. Now, understanding the critical point in the microscopic fundamental diagram evidently super important because then we can optimize for it, right? We understand how different network features and different designs of networks and different things that we do affect the total capacity that we have for cars. However, it's not enough because it doesn't give us a full picture. It doesn't tell us how we go from an uncongested state to a congested state. It doesn't tell us how uh, traffic congestion propagates. In fact, how does traffic congestion propagate? This is not a trivial question because it's, you know, traffic congestion doesn't happen like this in the network and then suddenly everything is congested. It's not like that. Normally, you start 
with one link that gets congested. With time, that congestion spills back into other links, and then another pocket of congestion appears somewhere else in the network. The pockets of congestion start increase, start growing, you know, adding links, and then new pockets of congestion start appearing. And at some point, if I keep adding vehicles to the network, these pockets of congestion connect, merge all together, and then you have congestion spreading all over the network. Another way, way of visualizing this is with a grid. Imagine the white squares are the uncongested links and the blue squares are the congested links. So each grid here sort of maps to what you're seeing on top. And as I move to the right, I have more congested links or more blue squares. Now this type of visualization is quite cool because it allows to use a concept from physics called percolation. In fact, it's called type percolation. It's a type of percolation. Now, for percolation, just let's assume that that same grid that I show you is a solid surface. It's a solid white surface. And I start poking holes on that, surface, on that surface. So the holes will be the blue squares. Right. And the P here represents the fraction of that surface where I have poked holes. So 0.2 means 20% of the squares on that grid are holes, are blue. And we'll have 35, 60, 80%. Percolation looks at the probability, the likelihood, that if I drop water on top of that surface, the water will find a connected path of holes, blue squares, all the way from top to bottom. So the water can percolate. That's percolation. Now, this specific grid is 20 by 20, which means that, in theory, with 20 blue squares, 20 holes, if I put them in a vertical line, stacked on top of each other, I could have percolation, right? I go drop water, and it's a vertical line. Now, 20 squares out of a 20 by 20 grid, that's out of 400 uh, squares, it's 5%, 0.05. So it's a grade that doesn't appear here. It will be like to the left of it. It will be like a few. However, that's a single realization, meaning a single way of putting holes on that grid. If I move any of those squares in the vertical line to the left or to the right, the water wouldn't go through, right? So the likelihood of that realization where all 20 holes are completely aligned in a vertical line, it's very small. Imagine all the ways that I can drop 20 holes in that surface. You know, there are many, many ways that the 20 holes can appear there. And as the grid becomes larger and larger, the likelihood of any individual realization becomes smaller and smaller, almost zero. Right? Fortunately for us, physicists, have um, analytically calculated the likelihood of percolation for an infinitely large grid. Now, P of infinity means the likelihood that an infinitely large grid percolates. And this is how the function looks like as a function of P, as a function of the number of blue holes, or blue squares. This is how the function looks like. It's almost zero until it reaches a critical fraction of holes 
and then it increases drastically until it gets to one. So it's a non-continuous function, but it also has other features. I'm gonna focus now on two very interesting features. The number of clusters described by the yellow line and the state of the size of the largest cluster described by the blue line. So if we look at the number of clusters, the yellow line, it starts growing little by little as I increase, and this is as I increase the percentage of blue squares, the number of clusters increase. A cluster means one or more connected or directly adjacent to each other blue squares, right? If two blue squares are next to each other, they're, they form one cluster. If three are next to each other somehow, they form another cluster. Okay, so the number of clusters starts increasing because I'm adding blue squares. And then it reaches a peak and starts decreasing. How come if I keep adding blue squares, the number of clusters start decreasing? Because they start merging. As the clusters grow, they start merging, so the total number of clusters starts going down. In the extreme, when I have 100% of my squares are blue, I will have a single cluster. It's a one large cluster, right? Okay. Now that peak happens before percolation, so it is called a precursor for percolation. Now similarly, if we look at the size of the largest cluster, which is the blue line, initially it grows little by little. Well, because I'm adding one blue square here, another blue square over here, etc. But once the yellow line peaks, once the number of clusters peaks, then the blue line starts growing fast. Why is that? because now it starts merging with other clusters. So rather than adding one blue square here and one blue square there, it starts adding full clusters. 15, square, uh, 15 blue squares at a time, 20 blue squares at a time, 10 blue squares at a time, right? Now what we wanted to do was try to understand whether there was any relationship or the dynamics of percolation were related in any way to the dynamics of traffic, traffic congestion as described by the macroscopic fundamental diagram, the MFE that I showed you before. Now the issue is that all those things are tracked as a function of P, the number of blue squares, or congested links. And in the MFE, I'm tracking everything as a function of density. But what we really, what, what we really care about was whether these two phenomena were linked in a temporal fashion. So we decided to track everything as a function of time, right? And then how do we do this? Well, we build this large-scale traffic simulation, very realistic. Uh, we use real data for the demand coming from call detail records, that's the phone calls you make from your cell phone. We calibrated the times to make sure they were realistic, the travel times using a Google API, is extracting data from Google in real time, etc. Then once we had the simulation ready and everything, what we did was for every single M, uh, link, we determined the fundamental diagram, what I told you about at the beginning. Remember, different links might have different fundamental diagrams. Now, all of this was automatic, right? We get the data, we define the fundamental diagram, or we obtain the fundamental diagram for that link. So at every single time step, we can tell you whether the link is congested or not. So from 8 to 8 or 2 a.m., that link is congested. From 802 to 804, the link is uncongested, whatever. We do this for every single link, and then we identify the clusters of congestion, and how we can see how they grow, et cetera. And 
then while we're doing this, we're tracking every single metric that you can think of. So this, for example, is uh, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, and the colors represent congested links. At the beginning, you have a bunch of colors because these are different clusters. Now, with time, some colors start becoming more prevalent because these clusters grow and grow and grow uh, until at the end you have a single cluster of congestion. Uh, at the same time, here at the bottom, we're tracking on the left side the, congested, the number of congested clusters, and on the right side, the vapor flow. As two examples of metrics we were tracking. Again, we were tracking every single metric that we could track regarding percolation and regarding traffic. Just to remind you and to explain the, the, the results, uh, we were trying to check if the dynamics of traffic were in any way related to the dynamics of a percolation process. By the dynamics of traffic, I mean those that we associate with the MFE that I sort of explained before, and the dynamics of percolation, some of the features that I observed before. So I will introduce the results using this kind of graph, so it's easier. The first thing we notice is that the peak for the number of clusters happen at capacity. Now, what does that mean? Does that make sense? Honestly, it was not what we were expecting at the beginning, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Because until that point, you start getting pockets of congestion here and there. But they're not connected to each other. They're small. Which means that I always have, between the pockets of congestion, because they're not connected, uncongested streets. So as I add more cars to the network, those cars are able to take those detours between congested pockets and avoid congestion to a certain degree, so I can keep a relatively high flow in the network. Flow, remember, was vehicles per hour, how many vehicles are moving through the network. Uh, once the clusters start to merge, that ability to take detours that are not congested goes away. Because suddenly, Everything is congested. So every individual car that I add to the network gets trapped in congestion. So the system becomes, you know, you move to the right side of the MFA. The system becomes congested. Now, similarly, we saw that at that same time, the size of the largest cluster started increasing. Exactly the same as in percolation. But then, what about percolation itself? How do we measure it? In a traffic system, we cannot pour water on one side and then see how it comes out on the other side, right? So fortunately for us, there are other metrics in percolation that allow us to track the moment when this happens. For example, the size of the second largest cluster, among others. If we look at the size of the second largest cluster, it grows, it, it shows a very similar behavior as the largest cluster where it grows slowly at the beginning because it's adding blue squares. And then it starts growing fast because it starts adding other clusters, many blue squares at the same time. But, you know, contrary to the largest, to the blue line, to the largest cluster, at some point it reaches its peak and then it drops in size. Why does it drop in size? Because it is absorbed by the largest pocket of congestion, right? So that marks percolation and that point actually happened to the right of the critical point on the MFA. But what does that point mean? Now, this is a hypothesis. We still haven't been able to prove it. In percolation, that point marks a point of no return. Once the system percolates, 
it cannot unpercolate. I don't, I, that's not a word, but you cannot go back. It's not reversible. Now, we know in, in traffic that's not the case. The system resets itself every day, right? We actually showed before the reproducibility of traffic patterns, which means that you start all over from the beginning. Because you simply, the demand goes down, and then the network empties, and you, you start again. However, what we know is that tra in traffic, the area around that capacity, around the peak of EMFP, the same is true for fundamental error, is very unstable. Meaning, you can be there for a while, or suddenly some changes might trigger like a, a rapid move into congestion. Our hypothesis is that the percolation point is what marks that difference, right? And in fact, for the system to recover after it percolates, it typically exhibits what is called hysteresis, but I won't go into that. So these are the actual results. We did the experiment for five different cities. Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, Lisbon in Portugal, and then Boston, Los Angeles, and San Francisco in the US. Look at the same thing in all of that. So if you look at Rio, for example, the peak in the yellow line, the number of clusters coincides with the peak in the MFV, the pink line, and it coincides with a drastic change in the slope of the size of the largest cluster, the blue line. All of that is marked with a vertical black line. Now, we're not showing here the progression of the size of the second largest cluster because it just gets too crowded and you need another access because of the sizes. But it's marked that drop in the size of the second largest cluster when percolation happens is marked by the dashed line. Now, there are other ways of uh, confirming or checking that percolation indeed happened, and we went through all of that, so it does happen. Uh, the results are exactly the same for the five cities especially for the three that percolated. Now, Boston and Lisbon did not percolate because we didn't have enough demand to get to a percolation point, but the process before percolation was exactly the same. Now, this is really cool because it allows us to understand how traffic congestion sort of propagates in the different pockets, etc., and give us a deep understanding of how that's happening, but it may also give us some warning signs on before the system gets really uh, congested, before the system percolates, right? We have these precursors, etc. Uh, in addition, physicists understand the percolation process rather well. And that might give us ideas on how to address some problems that we have in traffic that we still don't know how to address at the network level. So just to recap what we have seen so far, Traffic patterns are reproducible over time for any given city, but they differ across cities, which makes sense. Four network features can explain 90% of the variation in the critical point of a city, and the propagation of congestion follows similar dynamics of the percolation process. Again, all of this is good because it allows us to develop strategies or con control mechanisms to reduce the propagation of congestion or to reduce the incidence of congestion. However, none of this addresses congestion in the first place, right? So the question, how can we avoid congestion, still stands. We saw at the beginning that it's a mismatch. It happens because of a mismatch between the supply and the demand. Now we have seen that the supply is pretty much what it is, you know. And yes, we can use technology to gain efficiencies into the existing system. But we won't be doubling the capacity 
of the existing system, because that's mostly given by the networks themselves. So why don't we do something about the demand? And then that takes me back to our cars. Why do we still love our cars so much if we know they're the least sustainable mode of transportation? So here, for example, you have a picture of how much space you need to move 125 people by car or by bus. Yeah. Clearly, buses have a much smaller environmental and spatial footprint. Yet, we continue to be married to our cars. When are we going to stop start taking the bus? Are we, will we ever? You know, can we do something for that to happen or that will never happen? So I will ask you if you have, if you don't mind, to pull out your cell phones and actually answer a couple of questions there. Okay. Would I ever consider taking public transport? Two people, no way. I would never get into a bus. Uh, 23, potentially, yes, it offers competitive service, if it offers competitive services. Okay, so this is surprising. I was expecting more pink uh, than I'm getting, so this is good. There's at least we're open-minded about this. Now, we're requiring that there is a big disclaimer here, if it offers competitive services. So for the next question, for public transportation to be competitive, it should be, Let's see, reliability is big, not surprising. Accessibility is important. Fast, you know, speed, since they're placed, okay, this is thinking. Speed and frequency and convenience. You know, we don't care that it's personalized, or at least we don't care so much, it seems. It's flexible, okay. Certainly, current, public transportation services are not like that. So that partly explains why no one here, or most people here, don't take public transportation. But is there something that we can do to address those? So we go back to the idea of information and technology. Oops. Uh, we have talked a little bit, well, quite a bit, about information and how to use it to get a better understanding of the system. Now let's talk about technology. Now, we can use technology for many things. We can use technology to improve the operations of traffic signals, to improve the safety of cars. We can use technology for many things. But for the reminder of the presentation, what's left of the presentation, I'm going to be focusing on the use of technology to create flexible multimodal transportation. Now, why multimodal? Because there is no mode that gives us other than the car that satisfy, satisfies yeah, all our needs. Uh, that is good enough for all our needs. Now, buses sometimes are not ideal for what we want. Maybe bicycles are, maybe walking, maybe micro mobility, maybe chair cars, right? Now, I'm stressing this because even if I focus now on buses, trying to say focusing on a single mode as an investment and in, as a as a way for people to leave their cars behind is not enough. We need to provide alternatives for the different needs that people have, for the different trips. Even the same person might have different needs, for like uh, different transportation needs for different trips. But for the next few slides, I'm in particular going to focus on modular vehicles, modular vehicle technology. Now, some of you might ask, 
product cycling is modular vehicle technology. Uh, I didn't come up with the technology. It's been, this is manufactured by, by other companies, but it's vehicles that can drive alone as individual parts or combine together as multiple parts part of a single bus. Now, the fact that they can couple and decouple while they're moving give us a lot, a lot of flexibility. Um, first, they can change the capacity of the vehicle, the bus. It allows people to transfer, which means that we can separate uh, the different parts so they take different directions. Similarly, we could bring parts together from different directions for people to transfer while the parts are moving. Now, the, the parts are also electric and autonomous, meaning no driver. And for this specific manufacturer, and I'm not associated with this manufacturer in any way, uh, the capacity is six people sitting and about 20 people standing. Now, just to highlight the features of this technology, they're autonomous vehicles, so you don't need a driver, which means more space for other things, and this makes the vehicles very, very compact. They're smaller than a car because you don't have space for luggage in the back, for the engine in the front. It's all underneath. You don't have a driver. They're electric, which means they should be clean, assuming that the sources of energy used to generate the electricity are clean. They give us variable capacity, so if we have a lot of demand, we dispatch a lot of pods, you know, a bus with five pods, but if we don't have enough demand, we dispatch a bus of a single pod contrary to the systems nowadays where you have a specific fleet. And if you have a lot of demand, you have buses that are full. Uh, and if you don't have enough demand, you have the same big bus that is empty, right? So this gives us a lot of uh, room to play with the capacity. And the fact that we can do en route transfers between pods get us a lot of flexibility. I'll, I'm gonna explain how. Modular vehicle technology potentially, this is a work in progress, but potentially could allow us to, uh, would allow us to develop public transport systems that are fast, reliable, frequent, accessible, flexible, personalized, convenient, the things that we were mentioning before. There are many different ways to operate modular vehicle technology. We have worked in many different types of operations, first by slowly integrating them into the existing traffic, uh, public transport systems, etc. But what I'm gonna present over the next few slides is uh, something a little more drastic, I mean, more of a drastic change or departure from traditional technology. We call it slam bus. And slam bus starts for stop, stands for stop left autonomous modular bus. How does it work? Well, let's assume you have a single corridor with a bus stop. It's a bus bay, which means that the bus, when it is stopped, it's outside the traffic lane, so it's not blocking traffic, right? So that's called a bus bay. So with conventional systems, you will have a bus that comes, stops there, the bus bay picks up the passengers and leaves. With a slam bus, you will have a bus that you know you have the same stop and everything, but the bus will be composed of multiple pods. And then you will have a pod at the station that is already loading people as it waits. 
Now, as the bus is approaching the station, the people who want to get off at that station move into the uh, detaching pods. It can be one or more. Here is one in this example. So at the same time, the pod at the stop closes its door and it starts moving so it can catch up with the bus that continues traveling without any reduction in speed, right? Then the detaching pod comes to a stop, people get off, and the pod stays there waiting for the new demand to come in slowly as it waits for the next bus to come and then the process starts all over again, right? Now, that's in a uh, normal corridor, but you would expect at a network level, you would need something a bit more complicated and at least four pods per bus. I'm saying at least, could be more. In the network level, you would expect that most streets have two directions, so you would need to provide the same sort of service in the other direction as well. But the cool thing here is that you could potentially transfer from any place to any place in the network without doing, without getting off your pod. You will transfer internally within those four pods to get into a pod that is turning right, or the pod that is going straight, or the pod that is going left. The fourth pod is the one that is stopping at every stop. And this is true in every intersection of a network. It's not a trivial problem to solve, but, it can, but you can do it. It's not that hard either. And the idea will be that you move from any place to any place in the network without actually doing external transfers. We know external transfers, meaning getting off your bus, waiting for the next bus, or walking to the next station to, what, to wait for the next bus and getting to the next bus, it's a pain. Uh, and it's a big deterrent for people to use public transportation. So this will help with that. Now, you would also expect that not every street is a corridor like that. You don't have this sort of slam bus into, on every street. You probably have it along the main arterials or the main corridors. So there are always areas of the network that don't uh, have access to those corridors and you would still have demand there. So the idea for those areas would be, well, you might have one or more floating pods, I would say, in those areas that are also collecting the demand and bringing, the, bringing that demand into the slam system. Again, without any external transfer, right? Now, this, as I said, is work in progress, but this system promises multiple things. First is that it allows to increase the capacity and the frequency because buses are traveling faster. So with the same number of buses, you can go more times because they're not stopping at the stops. Um, so with the same fleet size, you can increase either the capacity or the frequency of both. I mean, both. Alternatively, to address the same demand, you will need a smaller fleet size than a conventional system. That's from the operator's perspective. From the user perspective, it reduces the travel time because they don't have the need to stop at every intermediate stop. It increases the reliability. Reliability was one of the most important things or the most important factor. Reliability is a huge problem in public transportation. A lot of it stems from bus bunching. It's, it's a known problem. We have been working on it for, by we I mean the community, for 30 years or longer and still happens nonstop in real life, right? It's really hard for buses to keep to their schedule. Uh, this will completely take care of that because most of the issues of reliability stem for the stop, from the stops. They, come up, they, they happen because of the stops. 
So, but because the boss, the main boss, is not uh, stopping anywhere, that would certainly increase reliability in a considerable manner. And by eliminating completely the external transfers, it would increase, even if not completely, even if we do mixed systems, by reducing significantly the number of external transfers, uh, it would increase the convenience. It would also give you a lot of accessibility because you have a main system, but you have also a complementary system that fits into that. It would be like a hub and spoke service from air airlines, where these floating pods will behave as a small place that get you from the smaller cities to the big cities to put everyone into a big place, which will be like the slam bus to transfer you between the big cities, to transfer you along the corridors, and then you can transfer back into the smaller pods. And hopefully these complementary services could be more personalized, meaning be more on, on a demand, on-demand basis. Now, our ultimate goal is to develop efficient public transportation systems that make travel seamless, something that doesn't happen these days, and provide a flexible and personalized experience. I emphasize the word seamless, which we haven't discussed before, because cars do that for us. You know, when I take a car, I go from my home to whatever my final destination, a single move, that's it. Other transportation modes typically mean that we need to transfer. I need to walk to a station, I need to then transfer from bus to train, etc. And a lot of times that's not a seamless process. One of the things we have to do, and I haven't presented here, but is integrate all those modes so you have a seamless trip from beginning to end. You don't notice that you're changing modes, it's not an inconvenience for you. Now, that's my goal as a researcher. Based on what you have learned today, I would ask you, what would be your goal in terms of mobility? Would you be rethinking some habits in terms of mobility? Would you be rethinking your choices or not at all? Today we presented how to use information or we discussed how to use information to better understand what's going on in the system and potentially technology to give you alternatives. However, even if we try to improve the operations from the controller side, from the city side, from the operator side, it ultimately comes down to the, every decision that we make as individuals, right? So with that thought, I would finish the presentation now without thanking all the co-authors who helped and, and the papers that I discussed today or presented today. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.